0: This is a 3CR podcast.
1: And this is Published or Not. You can always have a difference of opinion, but has there been something you felt so strongly about that you physically stood up, walked out and joined a group to protest? This is what Alison Gibbs' book, Repentance, is about. Welcome. Welcome to Published or Not, Alison. Thank you very
2: much, Jan. Thanks for having me. Repentance is the title of the book, but what else is it? Repentance is the town that is at the heart of this novel. It's a name that came to me very early on. And when we're talking the writing of this book, that means very early on because it's been a very long process. I lived um, on the far north coast. I grew up on the far north coast of New South Wales. And there'll be a lot of people who realise that That is the location of this book. Um, And while I wanted to fictionalise the precise locations, the towns, the people, they're they're an amalgam of many, many towns and people, Uh, I lived on a road called Repentance Creek Road. There was something about that name that has always entranced me and intrigued me. The book had all these sort of... um, theological themes Mm, that had come out very strongly our our place in the universe (laughs) or in in the environment and the dictates of our philosophical ideas from from genesis and from yeah the, the the philosophies we're fed new age whatever actually dictate the way we see our place in the scheme of things and it just remained the perfect name that's well, the we all. know
1: it's fictional. We know because, because Repentance does have a shop and it's in that shop that we have Joanne and her family. Mm-hmm. And it's Joanne's family have lived in the area for years as dairy farmers. Joanne has the smarts. She's not very popular at school. She's 14 and uh, I like the way that she follows two girls from a class who don't include her off the bus, quote, Watching the kick pleats of their uniform bouncing on their ballet school bums. <laughs> so she's 14. She's got an older sister who left school. This is Barb. And they're at home with their Auntie Peg. Oh, Auntie Peg's an interesting character too.
2: Yes, Auntie Peg. She's in the process of moving in on this family. Their father owns the general store, the local shop in the main street of repentance. and That shop is the sort of hub of the town, so people pass through constantly. And Joanne works in the shop after school. (laughs) Sister works in the other major industry. You you mentioned that daring is a big part of the town's history, but so is timber getting. And like the whole of the north coast of New South Wales, uh, it it was built on cedar, red cedar originally, and then um, hoop pine and, and all sorts of other beautiful rainforest timbers that have been taken out of the forests. In that area over about 180 years. I'm
1: going to ask uh, Alison Gibb here to read a little bit from her book, from page 37. Now, this places the Auntie Peg and the two sisters, Joanne and Barb, in the kitchen and having a discussion. With...
2: So, I will just say that her sister Barb, who's about 17, works in the local sawmill, which is the major employer of the town. So, here we are in the kitchen with Auntie Peg. And the girls are just adjusting to her being in the house all the time because their mother is dying and they are feeling their father's sister sort of moving in on their territory. So there's a lot of tension in the house at this time. No wonder Aunt Peg was angry. That Jared guy was trying to shut the mill down. So why are they having this meeting now? Barbara rolled her eyes. There's a new set opening up. On the northern side of the basin, it's just bush, but the hippies are calling it rainforest and getting everyone all worked up. Joanne looked at her in dismay. Not the pretty bit beside the creek. No, see what I mean? You're as bad as they are. We're not touching that bit. We just had to put the road through there, that's all. This is the shit they're talking. Barbara, said Peg. That's good, I like that bit, Joanne said. All the palms and moss, like a jungle. And even up the top, we're only selective logging. It's not like we're chopping the whole lot down. Peg got up from her chair and began to fill the sink. It's funny, all this talk about the forest out there. All these people bushwalking and having picnics all of a sudden. No one ever went out there before this trouble started. And now it's become this precious place and we're all spoiling it.
1: Oh, yes, so many different angles. Very well done, very concisely written there. And it's not the big politics of the situation, it's the heartfelt feels of the locals. So, into repentance comes Linda and Melanie, mother and daughter. And, you know, there's things that they like about the place. They loved the sherbet clusters of lantana flowers the billowing camphor laurel trees and the frothy white crofton weed that lined the creeks in the spring but what's wrong with all of those things they're, they're all, all introduced,
2: introduced. Yes.
1: yes now they're looking for gerard and they're going to share his house which is an old disused dairy house so what's gerard doing there and what's this about him doing a public meeting
2: well, Gerard Ansiewicz is one of the counterculture moving into the area in the early 1970s and he is a very politically driven person, very passionate about the environment. He actually has a background in uh, botany and natural sciences and he has started this movement that's rallying against the mill and the clearing of a forest basin, of virgin forest. He's formed this household, so as was all over the area at the time, the dairying industry was in decline, beef was in decline. It was, a, it was a time of some depression in the agricultural scene there. And the farmhouses were being left empty, as were the dairies and the outhouses, and the counterculture came in in force after the Aquarius Festival in 1973 on the north coast. And so these households were extremely common and he is the leaseholder of this house.
1: When you think that there's a protest movement sort of starting, even in the the book, you realise that there's different types of leadership. So Gerard is on one side and Philip de beer is another. So what's causing their problems of leadership division? The book
2: looks a lot at different types of protest. In fact, there's many, many different examples of resistance and protest. And there's that tension between militancy and peaceful protest, which continues, in fact. <laughs> in fact, I think we've seen some pretty stark examples of it in very recent months. And it's this attempt to pull the middle ground, but how do you do that? And there are people who think that if you're peaceful and quiet about it, then it makes, you know, change does not happen. And they're pitched against the people who are pacifist at the core and don't believe in, in the sort of violent tactics or even sabotage and all these things. So there's a tension there between these two rather strong men, one of them extremely charismatic and yeah. the other one more uh, sweaty and, uh, <laughs> and yeah. difficult, which is Jared uh, Ansevitz.
1: We see both sides of the story through Joanne. For a school project, she's paired up with Melanie, the hippie daughter, and stays with her for a weekend. This weekend, she, quoting, she felt in turns enchanted, shocked, mortified, and elated.
2: What did they do? Well, Joanne was in a a very, um, going through a pretty hard time at home, and she's someone who's really searching for her place, and I think that's Her story is at the centre, even while I tell the story from four different points of view. Joanne is the person who makes the journey in a way that that Mm -hmm. develops through the course of the book. And she's trying to find her place. She's feeling at odds with a lot of things in her town and her family at the time. And while, you know, her family is quite conventional and, and her father, you know, outspokenly anti-hippie, this opportunity for her to go back to her what was her grandmother's house and spend this weekend in secret gives her a glimpse of this other way of being, this other way of life. The restrictions of her own family and social circles and whatever become very clear to her. Look, I have to say, you know, there was a lot of things about the counterculture in that time that were very very enchanting for children. There's a whole magic about that, the relationship between adults and children in in that community, the use of celebration and even the music at the times when you listen, there's a lot that's very whimsical, I suppose you'd say. And she finds that suddenly these adults and children are all interacting, they play music, they do all these things that in her rather sullen and quiet house that is going through a trauma is very, very attractive, and she's really drawn to it as a kind of an escape, and an escape, I would say, from the um, mediocrity of the, of the other girls in the town and the things that she can't really compete at, like having a ballet school bum <laughs> or even the, the sort of fashions and, and things like that. She doesn't feel comfortable in that world.
1: And she would never think she would see naked men,
2: all no, well, she hadn't. You, <laughs> you know, Yes. There was a lot of things in one weekend that were oh, very yeah. eye-opening for yes. her. Yes. <laughs> and also the frankness with which Melanie talks about everything, you know, which yeah. is, you know, that thing of the hippie kids being kind of Knowing, as Auntie Pegg calls them, they're knowing. knowing, and they're very frank about sex and, you know, who's who's biological father and all these terms she's never ever heard before. So she's absorbing an awful lot in a forty-eight hour period.
1: So there's the openness of that, and then the very incredible structure of the protest meetings, the conch shell passing, you know, and that's to get the wisdom of the tribe that everybody contributes to the song singing, and this is all done prior to the logistics and the consensus and decision-making, and even things down to making alternative plans for the pets. Everybody Mm. has their jobs, and Linda, who so wants to do massage, everybody's much more qualified than her, so she's sent off to do the shopping. (laughs) Well, the climax, of course, is the protest but the last chapter and a few of the other chapters are given the botanical names of insects and an in-depth look at the life of an insect. Now, mm. Alison Gibbs, why that?
2: That was, that was a very, very early decision I made to have what I called the vignettes, and I think the Guardian Review called them the intermezzi. I think it sounds very fancy, but there's these little interludes in the book that are quite poetic, they're quite lyrical and they are the point of view of the forest because I'm telling the story from the point of view of a 13-year-old girl and a 36-year-old woman and the owner of the sawmill who's a very sympathetic character in it too, but all these different perspectives on the worth of the forest and the use of the forest and what the forest is and means I then give voice to the forest itself and its creatures. So I just have these moments where we get their perspective on, on the world in a way. And the, the insectivorous vignettes are part of that. There's also another chapter that is just the forest when nobody's there. Mm. And that was quite a challenge to write in a way because it's... we're always projecting our uh, metaphors and, and things onto nature.
1: You do get this rhythm of life. you go through with the insects and you mentioned the owner of the mill Sandy Mitchell he takes such great pride in his knowledge and the skills of his workmen but he's unsure of his own future so that whole rhythm of life because his son I don't think wants to do what he did which was done by his father and his grandfather so it is that change of the yes so
2: what it is is looking at a town at a moment of cultural shift and that is that shift to the cities, losing the younger generations, the shift into the area by the counterculture, but it's also a shift in our bigger understanding of the environment and natural resources and the finiteness of natural resources, which up until then, apart from a few notable exceptions, wasn't really part of the, the, the general discourse. I always say, you know, I grew up opposite a sawmill in the little town of Kyogle, up north, and um, it's a timber in Daring town. And um, it, uh, the, I, I lived across the paddock from a sawmill and it just went all day and the trucks went past and the logs came in. And I don't ever remember, and I mean, I was eight when I left, but I don't remember ever anyone discussing where those logs came from. They just turned up. They were just logs by then. They weren't trees anymore. And I really wanted to get, to capture a moment when our, consciousness changed and that is really at the, at the heart of the novel. The insects I've chosen, it's almost like they're leading a counterattack because <laughs> they keep swarming and sort of invading the town and they sort of come in these waves and swarms and and there's a sense that they're trying to fight back in some way and so it's, it's sort of both an element of nature in the book but it's also an element of nature out of balance because something is going very wrong that these insects are invading and and, and swarming and, and becoming problematic. And that's the, the disturbance of the, of the rainforest ec- ecology.
1: So repentance, will it continue to have a logging industry or rainforest tourism? This novel by Alison Gibbs is full of characters who have their own histories and perspectives of what it should be, but what of their own future? Alison Gibbs, thank you very much. I thoroughly enjoyed this book. It was set back in a time that I knew Aquarius being sung and the Deserata of being on everybody's wall. And as you started talking about Genesis, at the very start there was Genesis quotes, at the end we had biblical graffiti, but also at the start was a quote from a Joni Mitchell song. (laughs) Well done, Alison Gibbs. (laughs) very much, Jan. And now it's David's turn.
0: Jackson Barley is Aboriginal. Jackson Barley is gay. These two plot strands weave their way through Gary Lonesborough's coming-of-age novel, The Boy from the Mish. So, Gary, welcome to 3CR. Hi, hey David. Thanks for having me. Now, you paint a fractious and chaotic picture of life for Jackson, right from the very opening. And if I may, the white boys stare at us from the pub. It's Ethan and his mates. They sit on stools behind the railing of the packed pub and sip their beers from schooner glasses, keeping their eyes on us. Next to me, Kalen stares back at them from behind the steering wheel, his mouth tucked at one corner and his eyebrows scrunched while Johnny lights a cigarette in the back seat. What are you bastards looking at, he shouts. They just stare, then they laugh. And I just looked to my lap because there's a cop car ahead of us, stopped on the other side of this red light. I know they're watching us, the ute with all the black faces inside. My throat is drying, but I don't want to drink from my bottle of Coke in case the coppers think it's a beer and pull us over. Within that very opening, we have racism, alcohol, cars, policing, the challenges for young Indigenous boys are quite profound.
3: Yes, I wanted to, you know, paint that exact picture right from the get-go.
0: Do those attitudes still prevail today?
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, as someone who's been racially profiled more than once, I can definitely say there's still some, yeah, ground to to be moved on in that regard.
0: Now, the title is the boy from the Mish. The word Mish, would you care to explain that to the listener?
3: Sure, that uh, refers to missions. So, uh, you know, back in the day, Christian groups and government groups would move Aboriginal people into missions and reserves. Um, and so Jackson's basically living in what used to be an Aboriginal mission, which now in modern day Australia is an Aboriginal village.
0: But it also perhaps suggests to the notion of a type of segregation.
3: Yeah, definitely. I you know, I use a few different examples through the book where it shows that segregation between the mission, the, the neighbouring town, uh, which is, you know, very much the experience of how it was back in the day and also how that's sort of still a, a, in impacting people today who live in those sort of communities.
0: At one point, you've got Jackson and Thomas uh, walking along the beach back to the Mission Beach. And it's almost like they're interlopers on a white beach.
3: Yes, yeah, that, that reinforces that segregation, that um, yeah, that space between the general white community and the general Aboriginal community. Um, you know, there's still a long way to go, even though we've come a long way in the last 10 or so years. But, uh, you know, while it is uh, showing that separation in the book, uh, it's also, you know, a symbol for the larger separation in in Australian society today.
0: You do provide an outlet for Jackson and boys like him to almost rediscover their Indigenous identity. So, for example, we're a big family, each of us related, familiar. Even the younger boys love being painted up and are always eager to learn their dances from Uncle Charlie, even though they get super shy sometimes. It's a healing for us. The older ones, the younger ones. Some of us have problems with drugs, grog, family, relationships. Coming here and painting with the other boys heals us. Sometimes we go fishing and camping. It's men's business. We're out on country, on the water. We reconnect with our spirituality. Has there been a growing consciousness and acceptance amongst the Indigenous communities to begin with? of their spirituality and identity?
3: I can't speak for every Aboriginal community, but um, I will say that, yeah, in certain parts, you know, where I'm from, Bigger, you know, we have these sort of groups and quite a big Aboriginal community down there who, um, you know, we also have a lot of Elders that are also still able to pass on those sort of teachings and lessons, and I think that's a big part of the, of the, the culture of, um, you know, being Aboriginal is having that spirituality, you know, knowing that, oh... You know, Our ancestry goes back thousands of years. Um, So, yeah, I really wanted to convey that sort of message in the book.
0: But that acknowledgement from the Indigenous community seems to be more open today. I can remember reading Sally Morgan's My Place, and one of the lines in there is that she would explain the colour of her skin by saying, oh, Indian descent. There wasn't the acknowledgement of one's Indigenous identity.
3: Um, yeah, so I guess back in like the 80s or 70s um, it was a lot harder for an Aboriginal person particularly if you had you know lighter skin. We know now that you know being Aboriginal well you know it's more about how you feel inside and it's about the identity that you feel so um yeah, I think it's it's good that you know more people are able to accept who they are and be proud of being Aboriginal today.
0: Does this also then link with a change in the European attitude, uh, have we evolved as well in terms of our willingness to accept?
3: I think there's definitely been a lot of improvements. You know, I was probably 13, 14 when Kevin Rudd did the apology. Yeah, it's been, it's been very improved since, since I was a kid and, you know, before that. Um, there is still a long way to go because a lot of, you know, a lot of people hold very dear these certain things, that, for example, Australia Day. That, you know, without uh, considering, you know, what that means for for Aboriginal people, there's still a long way to go, but I think things have improved a lot.
0: Well, the whole question of dispossession and what that actually means and what that actually feels like is part of that discourse that needs to take place. The other thread in this story of identity comes out with uh, Jackson's sexuality. He's 17. He's discovering himself he meets thomas who's on probation but they're finding
3: that they're actually gay basically the reason i wrote the book was because i hadn't read you know, a book like this uh which would have really helped me as a teen i think uh just to read a book that was about an aboriginal character who was going through exactly what i was going through um, and who i could take inspiration and uh, comfort from
0: what is the attitude then in Indigenous communities about sexuality?
3: That's a good question. Um, You know, I think the community is generally very accepting. You know, the thing I wanted to convey was the fear that I was feeling as a kid. Uh, You know, it's it's just that absolute fear that you have. You know, you've got so much at stake. You've got, you know, your relationships with your family and your friends, and then you've also got on top of that your place in the community and your relationship with those other community members and... That's sort of what's at stake for Jackson, so I wanted to portray that fear that he has. Um, I think generally that the attitudes are very accepting. You know, I've had nothing but support myself, so yeah, I just wanted to really tap into that teen fear that Jackson has.
0: There's also another strand in this story where Jackson and Thomas intersect, so to speak. Uh, Thomas has is out on probation, one of the things he's been asked to do is write. A story but then Jackson illustrates this story and we have an Indigenous superhero. What made
3: you think of that? But I think that was basically born out of me wanting to give Thomas more things to do in the book. Uh, so it was through the edits that I was finding that his character was you know just sort of there. He, he was really there just to serve Jackson's journey and Uh, You know, just developing him and trying to figure out, you know, where he came from and, you know, what his background was and how I wanted him to be at the end of the story as well. I found, you know, making them both artists came really easy and tapping into, I guess, you know, Aboriginal people as as a culture, we're all very artistic people. So, yeah, I really wanted to show the connection through art, which is, which I think can be really powerful for a lot of people.
0: But it's also a contemporary exploration in many ways of identity, the superhero genre, the writing of a story, to enable one to move through periods of difficulty.
3: I wanted it to be contemporary because uh, that's the kind of story that I needed to read was, you know, something that was happening at the time I was a teen. Uh, you know that could have been happening at the same time, and you know when I was Jackson's age, and yeah, uh, you know, so I thought that was really important, and you know added a lot to the relatability and the you know the empathy you can get for those characters, and yeah, I uh, yeah, I guess I just wanted to make it you know a story that could be happening right now.
0: What are the challenges ahead for boys like Jackson who are still partially segregated, separated? Who are exploring their identity? What lies ahead for them? Do you think?
3: Well, yeah, I think everyone's journey is different. But you know, whether you've got a loving, supportive family, uh, you know, a really great group of friends, it's still it doesn't take away from that fear that you have when you're dealing with these kinds of things uh, within yourself. The challenge for me was that I didn't have any uh, resources like this book or film or TV that I could look look up to and see people who are like me reflected in. So um, and I think the challenge is that lack of representation as well. So I'm hoping there will be more stories by Aboriginal authors that explore Aboriginal stories and Aboriginal queer stories as well. And there, there are a lot more books by Aboriginal authors these days, which are easily accessible, which I'm thankful for, but definitely hopeful for more.
1: Well,
0: you paint a picture of a very united community in many ways, a very supportive Community, but also then you're posing the question of uh, identity and how one comes to terms with that, not just one's Indigenous identity, but sexual identity as well. The novel is The Boy from the Mish, the author, Gary Loansborough, and it's an Alan and Unwin release. So, Gary, thank you very much for talking with me today.
3: Oh, thank you, David.